fans, and welcome to the first episode in a new mini-series we're doing in build-up to WrestleMania 40 coming out. We're going to take part in March Mania, a podcast so manic it's not even starting in March. But it's the t- <laughs> that's down to the 29th of February. Damn you, Gregorian calendars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your co-host, Lorca Mullen, and with me, as always, is the jumping Jim Brunzel to my B. Brian Blair. Mr. Simon Cross, hello. Simon, we're doing this series now where we're going to talk about matches from various WrestleManias over the course of the years. When we first pitched this idea to ourselves, we had this idea in 40 days, 40 manias, 40 matches. Then we realised that maybe we should try and get a social life in 2024. I think we remember our mad sprint to do all the five stars a few years ago. (laughs) Yeah, an episode a day. It definitely makes your social life go away at that point. (laughs) And also, I think if this is a fun and enjoyable concept, then we can bring this back as like a four for over a four year stretch. We can cover all the 40, 44 manias or whatever it will be at that point. And then when that's done, we will have all of them done. But yeah, a bit of space, yeah. a bit of time. And also a bit more gaps in between the matches can allow a bit more of a reflection and see how things have changed as the years have gone by. But one of the other things that we're doing in this is bringing in a guest. But first of all, Simon, if you just want to explain what the match is, and then we'll introduce our guest. So the match we're covering today is one of the most famous WrestleMania matches of all time, taking place at WrestleMania 3 in the Pontiac Silverdome, not the Superdome. (laughs) (laughs) Taking place, to be precise, on the 29th of March, 1987. It is for the WWF Championship. The defending champion is Hulk Hogan, the irresistible force, and he is taking on the immovable object, that is Andre the Giant. And our first guest for this show is a real thrill for me, I assume for you as well, Simon. The concept of the podcast is that we were two differing generations of wrestling fans with our age gaps. Our real access and entry point into a new level of wrestling fandom came via Power Slam magazine. Now, I'm not sure if by the time you were picking it up, our guest was still a writer on the magazine, but... When I picked up my first issue, issue 50, for the first few years of my wrestling education, it was at the hands of Finn Martin, the editor, and this guest with us today. He is the writer and journalist and all-around wrestling fountain of knowledge that is John Lister. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, Also, on a personal note as well, get it out of the way first and foremost, one of the reasons we started this podcast was because... Simon, you saw me do a show at the Bedworth Art Centre where we'd met uh, that then became a show that I took to Edinburgh about my life as a wrestling fan, Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. I then turned that into an e-book. Um, Mr. Lister is the only writer of any repute that actually took the time and the effort to review the book and gave it a very glowing, lovely review. It basically might have been the highlight of actually the work that it took to get it out because god knows it wasn't the financial hit that i would have liked it to be (laughs) but john you writing those words after i'd spent so many years reading your writing about wrestling really did mean a lot to me oh that's good to hear i mean quite often you know a few times my wife's had the fantastic idea of john you should write fever pitch but about wrestling and i point out it's actually already been done yeah (laughs) That was, yeah, it was fever pitch in spandex was always my four-word pitch of the thing. That is a lovely, lovely thing for you to say. So, yeah, we brought you on, John, because I'm not going to be so crass as to ask for your date of birth or any more of your details. I'm still trying to get that credit card info out of you. I'll get it one day. (laughs) But we did think, because you were the person that sort of educated me as to my wrestling fandom... Would WrestleMania three at what point in your life and your as a fan were you aware of it as a current event? Because for me and Simon, it's obviously like almost a mythical event of the past, I suppose, for wrestling. So in 1987, I would have described myself as a wrestling fan, more of a wrestling viewer. So I'd be watching the World of Sports, and at this point, this the standalone ITV matches. Basically, as another TV show, it was it was something that if it was on, I would watch pretty much came down to, you know, most of the year. If Hitch and Town were playing away that week, I'd be watching the wrestling. If they were at home, I'd be, you know, skipping it to go and watch the football and really became a, a wrestling fan. I would say a couple of years later when I moved to a town that had cable TV and 
everybody in the town uh, in my school watched wrestling because pretty much every house had had this cable tv with sky it was uh, 75 pound got you uh, cable tv for five years so that's a, a pretty good deal. <laughs> so, of course, I, you know, decided to you know, be big headed, didn't like the wrestling because everyone else liked it. And then about 1989, when everyone else was starting to get a bit tired of it, I, I saw the, the mega powers explode and got very interested. In, and really, WrestleMania 5 was my first pay-per-view that I went out uh, for a point of deliberately watching when it was on. But really, out of the first five manias, it has to be Hogan-Andre as sort of a definitive match of that era. Well, I guess the big question of that would be, is it the definitive match of, if not all wrestling, at least what... Because I was saying this to Simon, we're really in the 40th anniversary of what I guess we could consider modern wrestling, if you either define it from Hogan winning the world title in January of 84, but also on top of that, a month earlier, Ric Flair winning the world title from Harley Race for the definitive second and sort of the proper passing of the torch and also as well in world class around this time terry gordy's slamming a steel cage door into kerry von eric's head and so these little explosions are going on and it's starting to form a nationwide phenomenon a cult a, 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 just a general like a, a connected universe of sorts of fans i mean i'm curious as well because i have my way of getting into wrestling and and sort of smartening up for lack of a better term with power slam magazine what was your sort of gateway power slam of of sort of starting to learn and look at it in a way that eventually you became a writer in that sort of medium? I think actually it would be probably the the fanzines uh, of the the early nineties, which was the way I tried to describe it to people who didn't have remember it there. So it was magazines that you kind of make yourself, and then you'd sell it by subscription, mail order, and. It's kind of like if you imagine the, the same kind of arguments people have on wrestling forums now or they have on Twitter. But on Twitter, you say something to someone, you know, they'll come back with a point 10 seconds later. You know, 10 seconds later, you've got your reply. Within two minutes, you've got a flame war and the whole thing gets out of hand. This was pretty much the same thing in the lesser pages of these magazines, except you'd make your point. A month later in the next issue, somebody would have their point. And, you know, you'd reply a month later. So you you kind of had a bit of time to think about what you were saying, kind of think about it a bit more in depth maybe than you, you might do now. Cooler heads could prevail or was it still <laughs> as heated as it ever was? It just you, you're stewing in your, in your anger for a good month or so. <laughs> I do remember occasionally uh, Rob Butcher, who's the editor of uh, Sucker Punch uh, fanzine, was a, a fellow Power Slam writer. He did occasionally have to sort of give people a time out and end uh, discussion on a particular topic. <laughs> Uh, whereas I'm assuming Meltzer probably had about 15,000 pen pals that he was sending abusive letters to, because that seems to be how he operates on Twitter now. Oh, yeah, God. I mean, that was the, you know, the origin of the Observer, was it was basically, he was a tape trader. He would put a letter into, you know, various tape traders with, oh, this is what I've heard is going on in this territory, you know, these are results from San Francisco, and eventually realised he was, you know, writing the same letter to 200 different people, and just had the idea, well, let's make it into a, into a magazine and only have to write it once. Mm. Were you ever an Observer subscriber in those early days? I just wasn't even... Because I was thinking... Me and Simon were discussing this a few months ago that Meltzer's observed that it seems like most of his subscribers now are in the UK based on how many people spoke to him at All In and everything. And again, I was wondering if it is because, like, we grew up on Power Slam and that was an, you know, a relatively easily accessible magazine. It was in WH Smith's and everything. And that was in a similar sort of uh, treatment of the wrestling industry as the Wrestling Observer. So maybe a larger percentage of British fans took in that mindset at an earlier age i don't know uh, i don't know if you think there's anything to that but you know whereas in america it was the official magazines but also the the aptamags but i don't think the observer was ever in the shelves of what their equivalent of wh smith's would be and i guess part of it would also be you had to work a bit harder to be a wrestling mm. fan in the, the uk because it was you know you might have to wait a while to see the shows you'd have to tape trade to kind of track down anything other than wwf you'd have to stay up till silly o'clock in the morning to watch a show live mm. and i guess that kind of you know filtered it down to sort of more of a, a hardcore audience with a, a sort of a more interest in what was going on behind the scenes mm. so wrestlemania 3 was to you uh, an event you watched in hindsight as well can you recall, because for me, actually, back in those days, WWF VHSs were all £15, and, you know, that's 
quite a lot now for spending on a DVD or, or a Blu-ray or anything for me anyway. And so when you think about it in a in an inflationary term, that's about thirty quid for one pay-per-view on VHS. For the most part, I got like one VHS for birthday and one for Christmas, maybe, and the rest it'd be if I was lucky. They were at my local blockbuster or choices, and I don't really think they bother with any WWF VHSs any earlier than 1989, I would say. So WrestleMania 3, I think, was quite relatively late in my fandom that I finally got my hands on it. I think I might have been like 15 or 16. So that would have been like early 2000, like like the midst of the Attitude Era. So again, it always had that kind of mythic status to me. Uh, But can you recall sort of when, around what time you would have seen Hogan v. Andre for the first time? So, yeah, it would have been uh, getting the VHS tape from almost certainly Woolworths at the time, Mm. um, which I believe would have been late 1990, early 1991. So it was the second or third kind of batch of WWF releases. Um, But I say it really was kind of mythical that time because I I remember having become a fan in 1989. For the first time, I realised that through kind of seeing the magazines that was sort of mentioning old things being able to realize that i knew what the main event was of all five wrestlemanias that was like the most exclusive you know uh, historical wrestling knowledge which is absolutely crazy when you just think of you know you can find anything like in 10 seconds on the internet now but yeah it was going back and, and watching all the events and i think that was definitely one of the the sort of the early ones to get because it was kind of such a had been built up as such a, a legendary show and historically it, it really was because it it's like the rule of three, I guess, but WrestleMania three established WrestleMania as a something that's going to be happening every year would be the biggest show of the year. And it also really became the first uh, show where pay-per-view really got established as the thing for wrestling. And that would be basically the, the business model for the next sort of 35 years or so. It wasn't the first wrestling show on pay-per-view. It was the first one where the majority of the money came from pay-per-view. So it was oh, sorry, 450000 on closed circuit, 400000 on pay-per-view but the pay-per-view cost was higher and that really kind of opened up to you know we can now get mm. any fan anywhere in the country can pay for it and to kind of put the money into perspective Starcade 83 with uh, closed circuit was the first time a wrestling show had uh, done more than a million dollars in people paying to see it either live or at a closed circuit wrestlemania 3 brought in 17 million dollars so that's just the, mm. the absolute skyrocketing and i think the point where people realized you know, the, the house show is no longer going to be, like, the big point of, of, of wrestling. It's going to be pay-per-view. We'll delve more into that, but just quickly to get your context of experience, Simon, when do you think you might have seen WrestleMania 3, or at least, this, like, do you think you've watched WrestleMania 3 as a whole card from start to finish, or is it maybe just... Did you just watch Hogan Andre for the first time this week? <laughs> to be honest, uh, yes, yes. Wow. First time this week. Is that the because of lack of interest, or...? Well, do you know the scene from The Simpsons where Homer's in the video rental movie and there's a bit Bane scene where uh, his partner dies and then the guy asks him, do you want to rent the movie? So he's like, why? I've seen the best part. <laughs> That's kind of been my attitude to Hogan Andre. I saw the slam. Uh, like It had been played on so many WWE intros. It has been used in so many compilation videos. I'd even like heard the uh, rhetoric about how Hogan makes andre like a hundred pound bigger each time he's like tells the story it's an iconic moment that's like seared into my brain like when i picture it and having actually seen the match today i don't actually picture it as the still full television i picture it as part of a wwe intro package because that's where i've seen it most when you see Um, you see it with an elderly man sitting on a rocking chair watching it on an old tv that clearly could not be connected to pay-per-view receivers satellite (laughs) receivers to watch it yeah like i I can see it like on the left hand side of like an intro screen it's it's weird how i've always pictured it (laughs) but yeah because this takes place like four years before i was born like the old WrestleManias I, I, I got into in the Attitude Era, I, I then had to rely on the tapes people taped for me as I didn't have Sky uh, growing up. So a lot of my month-to-month wrestling knowledge came through Power Slam. actually. It's uh, one of the reasons I took an interest in just what I was seeing on the surface level. And because this was so iconic and spoken about 
so many times even then before i had a lot more access i I knew it i knew the story already so i I never felt a need to see the match so because you came into wrestling fandom in 2002 like literally the end of the like again if you would say like there's particular eras of wrestling 2002 is really what people dub the ruthless aggression era but it's the whole post wcw and ecw and also thankfully for you post invasion and so i suppose the only thing that would intrigue you would be maybe the attitude here in the same way that I, you know, I had no desire to look to find anything beyond like those first few WrestleManias when I was watching from 1990 onwards. I wasn't going to try and seek out any tapes of Bruno Sammartino or Pedro Morales. And was that kind of what Hogan and Andre and everyone was to you? They were your Sammartino Morales, Bob Backlund figures. Yeah, because what's more appealing to an 11 year old? in 2002 hulk hogan or the bright in your face like colors and like violence of the attitude era it's going to be the attitude era and that that's to me it was like oh look at all these austin matches i didn't know about mm. or this Austin. this it, I, i'm i'm team stone cold in terms of like childhood <laughs> hero over team hogan fair enough and we'll talk more about how you feel about hulk hogan when we talk about a particular moment in the match as well <laughs> So I think you might even know what I'm going to ask you about. John, so that's funny you were saying about how this is like the pivotal moment. And I was thinking of other things you could compare it to in a pop culture sense. It's not that like if James Bond, as we know it, really kind of solidified itself in the third movie as well with Goldfinger. That was almost when the James Bond formula was created. And whilst it wasn't the third film in the series, the Avengers is sort of around that kind of period of time where truly what is a Marvel film and a Marvel tone sort of got solidified at that point and was what they built off of going after that. Like, is WrestleMania 3 still what WrestleMania is ultimately based around its look? I mean, it's funny, actually, that until WrestleMania 17, there were only two other stadium WrestleMania shows in the time between 3 and 17 at 6 and 8. Obviously, they planned to do one for 7, but we might talk about that in our next episode. Would you agree with that, that the WrestleMania 3 is why WrestleMania is the the event that it is now yeah i, mean, I think it's just the particularly not just the the mythical crowd number but also the visual of just mm. so many people in there but it's it's the stadium event and just the idea of it is the simplest thing ever it is the top baby face the top heel two absolute sort of giants meet meeting this match that has really they show a little video package beforehand and there's very little you know there's no real storyline it's just mm. this guy's never had a title shot he asked for a title shot um he's gone heel with the heel manager and and now it's going to happen yeah it's funny because you're saying that it was the mega powers exploding that brought you into wrestling and that was a story built over a whole year period whereas between 1986 and 1987 hogan was feuding with king kong bundy i guess his biggest feud at that point was paul orndorff that was Maybe, like, just as a touring show, that was WWF's maybe most successful run out of everything that they had, as you say, when their business was based around house show numbers, and they'd done a show in Toronto in front of, like, 60,000 people, and I think that was what gave them the confidence to book WrestleMania 3, I guess, because when you look at the other stadium shows, like the the world-class ones, they are great visuals, but they're also clearly in only half-full at best stadiums. And I wonder if that was the show that gave Vince the confidence that we can put on a show and it can at the very least look full. And as you say, the numbers will be debated for the rest of time, at least in those corners that we really should not keep shining our torches on of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> that's where that's what we do. That's where our, where our eyes are uh, attracted to it. Like you say, there's basically just four Piper's Pits angles that build up to this. Uh, Hogan gets a trophy. Andre gets a smaller trophy. Jesse Ventura and Roddy Piper argue. Andre comes out with Heenan and challenges Hogan to the belt. And then the other two angles I can think of are um, the contract signing and the Battle Royal at the Saturday night's main event before the week before WrestleMania 3 where Andre just disposes Hogan with ease from the Battle Royal. And like, that's you say, that was all it was needed. But that was, I guess, because of the status that Hogan had at that time as he was a cross-cultural star through his associations with Mr. T and everything. And Andre the Giant just kind of, until Hulk Hogan came along, being the default wrestler that people could name in the general public, I suppose. I mean, it's it's hard to gauge really what Andre the Giant meant to wrestling at that point because we know him as the the ultimate 
villain of Hulk Hogan, but before then he is, you know, he was in The Princess Bride the year before. Uh, what, what What's your feelings around Andre the Giant as a performer and a, and a figure of historical significance? And what he, what him losing to Hogan at WrestleMania 3 meant, I suppose. Yeah, so I mean, at this point, he has been kind of the top guy who wasn't NWA or, you know, World Heavyweight Champion throughout most of the 70s and 80s. He was a, a touring attraction who was booked like an NWA champion where he wouldn't be in the same territory for more than a week or so at a time. You know, you'd have to pay a lot to bring him in. And the idea was you didn't want him in the same place week after week after week because you didn't want to beat him. You don't want him to beat all your guys and the matches would be a bit similar. So by this point, the WWF is, has gone national, um, sort of taken almost exclusive uh, booking of him. Though actually at this point, he still have in his contract the rights to do overseas states. So somebody recently found some matches he was doing with Otto Vance and other people in Germany the year before, and he was still doing the occasional sort of tours to Japan. But yeah, I mean, he was very much hyped as, uh, you know, undefeated, never being slammed, neither of which are true. But certainly it was many, many years since anyone had seen him lose a high profile match or, or sort of be slammed for, for many years. You never really thought about the idea of um, them facing off because they always were booked as like two separate attractions. You know, one was the champion one was Andre is a special attraction who could maybe headline a B show you you could bring him in without the title and be attraction is uh, in his own sense and kind of being in the same territory all this time being on sort of TV quite regularly and his you know very severe physical decline at this meant it probably was like time to use the heat from him to kind of transfer to Hogan and get like the last big match out of him it's crazy, really, when you look at the state that he's in, especially as you know, after time. I think he just had back surgery, or he had to have back surgery in order to be able to do this match, really. And he was, was like you say, on the verge of retirement, it seemed. And then he kept going as a fairly regular WWF on-screen talent for the next three years, although I know he doesn't wrestle on looking at his cage match. He's got, like, one tag team match in April, and then the next wrestling match he has after this is the, is the Survivor Series 10-man tag. But yeah, the fact that Andre kept going for three years after this and did runs with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and The Ultimate Warrior and then his last run as the Colossal Connection against Demolition and his final match, or at least high-profile match for the WWF being at WrestleMania Six, which was supposed to be his big farewell, uh, right off into the sunset. And then he still continues to wrestle up to 1992. I think he's still getting booked uh, for All Japan for, for tag team matches which is really kind of crazy when you think of the guy and, and how they're working around his limitations throughout this whole match. It was funny, actually. I remember I watched briefly a clip, I remember, of the Andre the Giant HBO documentary. And obviously it's Hogan, so it's not a reputable source in most cases, but I think this is a fairly reasonable thing to believe is true, which is Hogan's letter outlining how he sees the match going. And one of the interesting things that I was struck by was he said, I'll hit him with punches, go for the body slam, He'll fall back on me, and then I'll make sure that we're near the ropes so that he can pull himself up. And I've seen that is what Andre had to do. Like, he was so physically wrecked at this point. And the way that they do it is that there's just... Andre just stands in the middle of the ring for pretty much the rest of that part. Then he follows Hogan to the outside. I've misremembered it as him taking a bump to the outside. He doesn't do that. So he literally just falls once very slowly down off of a clothesline. Then he's body slammed, and, and that's it. And I think you can argue that maybe this is Hulk Hogan's great, it's his greatest moment, but maybe also his greatest performance, and that this is Hogan working with a guy that can barely move. What are your feelings of Hogan, his work in this match, and just your general feelings of Hogan as a wrestler, as a performer? Yeah, I think in this era, he's, he's kind of underrated because he he's known as just doing the, the same shtick all the time. But I think there's there's a lot of variety depending on who his opponent is. And certainly, I mean, you can see how bad Andre's physical condition is when you look for it, as well as the getting the ropes to pull himself up. There's points where he's actually grabbing onto Hogan's uh, tights just to maintain his balance. And for what's kind of the definitive Hogan match... It's amazing when you actually watch it and you realise there's something missing. And what's missing is the most famous Hogan spot, which is the other guy doing their finisher, going for the pin, Hogan kicking out, and then the big hole cup. And there's, there's no pin attempt by Andre here because there's no there's no finishing move by Andre. Presumably because if Andre 
gets down onto his knees to pin somebody, it's going to be quite difficult to have, you know, Hogan, you know, kick out and push him off. He's not going to be able to roll out of the way. And it's going to be very difficult for Andre to, to get back up into a position where something done with him in a way that isn't really obvious that he's being helped up. So it's, as we say, it's literally he gets back in the ring after the body drop on the outside, is knocked down, fear doesn't take a bump, a traditional bump is just down to one knee and then rolling down. And it really is working around his, his limitations. I think a, an interesting way to watch the match, if you can ever track it down, is the, I believe it's the 50th anniversary of WWF, or WWE uh, Blu-ray set they put out has a special feature, which is this match, uh, but it's just for hard camera recording and just with the arena sound. So it's basically what you would see if you were a fan in the building without all the different cuts. And that, I think, makes it very obvious how they're working around, how they kind of structured the match. And you realise how important the WWF production of the time is. Because I noticed watching this, the, the sort of pay-per-view version of the match back, is that every single shot at ringside is done pointing pointing up the camera, almost as if the cameramen are sort of kneeling down at ringside, looking under the top rope, pointing up. So you see Hogan on the floor most of the time and Andre absolutely towering over him, filling up the entire frame. And it's sort of really well done to kind of emphasise the... This is the time that, you know, Hogan is the, the big guy, but he's he's actually sort of dwarfed by this match. And it's it's making Andre look like this giant and, and hiding the fact that he's, you know, pretty much immobile and that, that everything Hogan's doing is kind of just moving around him and kind of bumping off him. And that's funny as well, because they're saying, like, Jesse Ventura's giving their measurements as they are both coming to the ring, what their wrist size is, their, their chest, their leg, their cut, you know, their thighs, calf. Their calf. And he's saying Hogan is six foot eight and Andre is seven foot five. And it's oh, so funny. I have that exact note. <laughs> I have that exact note. I'm like, in what universe? <laughs> well, how crazy is it that the probably six foot 11, maybe seven foot Andre was a man that when he'd do promos and everything, they'd have him stand on a box to make him look even larger. But as you say, it does give you this incredible idea of like these gods among men. And also, I think you're making a very interesting point about the production values and one of the reasons i was thinking of doing it one after the other was because especially in these first seven to eight shows you're really seeing the uptick in the quality of production which i think a lot of people attribute to vincent Mann forming a relationship with dick ebersole at nbc who was producing saturday night main event and that really making him realize how important the the cameras because if you look at wrestlemania one it doesn't look any different to really any of those madison square garden specials that they would have aired between like even the the samatino era up to like 1985 86 uh simon are those things that you notice or you don't notice until like john points it out to you but you must have seen it subconsciously i mean did this match bore you or do you, or could you tell the wf putting the bells and whistles on it to obscure just how basic and fundamental what actually is happening is. No, I wasn't bored by the action. I recognise that a, a younger me would have been. But knowing what I know now, watching it for the first time uh, in 2024, I marvelled at how little you had to do in order to make people care. I was thinking about like how... Uh, on today's television we see people do like dives to the outside like n nearly every match in like a two-hour show but if you have a simple enough story and you tell it so well with the right charismatic people people can be on their feet for anything you put in front of them what did you think of hogan as a performer and his performance in this match and i wanted to say this about the spot in particular i think you i'm guessing you've made a note of because your theory time's theory john is that Hulk Hogan has essentially wrestled as a heel pretty much his whole career. <laughs> and it was only Hollywood Hogan that really revealed it all along. You're... It, Go on, sorry. It's, it's more, it was only because he was always doing it to bad people that people tolerated it. And then when he became Hollywood Hulk Hogan, people realised. Yeah. Well, I guess the spot, I, I, I imagine, can you guess what spot I'm thinking, like, triggered that reaction from you? Go on, put me out of my misery, because I might have it. It's Hogan exposing the concrete on the outside and going to pile yes. Yes, Andre on that. it. In another match on this card, it's a build-up from Randy Savage hitting Ricky Steamboat in the throat with a with a ring bell. And this is pretty much as heinous an act that Hogan's about to try and perform on Andre. 
see that shows my desensitization these days like i've seen so many baby faces and heels do that that i just go oh it's just something that happens <laughs> i wouldn't even necessarily but obviously you're right back then in 87 that it was a very heelish thing to do no one really did that back then on wwe slash f television obviously memphis had like all sorts of carnage with its empty arena brawls and stuff but not not in the homogenized wwf i would say what what would you say in response to that john because i think you make a good point that hogan as a worker especially around that time when he's maybe not set the formula in place where there's still maybe more of that uh vern garnier a new japan hogan still in his head that he feels like uh, he definitely is very good at that sort of wild brawling style that we did cover when we for a match of the week episode, we did Hogan against Stan Hansen in uh, 1990 at the Tokyo Dome. But you were saying, like, what, what what are your feelings of Hogan doing spots like that? And obviously he gets backdropped out of it. Is that more just him wasting time or is it just Hogan's instincts aren't necessarily always virtuous and true? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's kind of, it's got to be a way to set up the big move from Andre, but, you know, I think might have finished Hogan off, which is the for getting dropped from the floor. And I guess that's a, a way to do it. But yeah, I mean, Hogan, it was always meant to be like, oh, he's he's justified in using these tactics. But yeah, I mean, pretty much all he does in the match is punches, which technically is illegal in wrestling anyway. But <laughs> I think also that, that spot there, it's, it's one of the, the classic gorilla monsoonisms. So there's a couple of them. He within sort of 10 seconds of the start of the build-up he's explaining you know hogan and andre they they were almost like brothers so this match it's literally brother against brother i'm just like no saying here oh he's about to be here backdropped on or he's trying to pile driver him onto the concrete i was like it's a football field i'm pretty sure when they put you know people on there they're not concreting over it <laughs> yeah i was thinking actually on this note this time of watching it i kind of always assumed it was concrete but it actually looks like wood maybe or some sort of padding yeah, or some no, it would be because um the basil dome they used it for other events uh, so they would do basketball quite often there mm. where they would kind of set up the basketball court would be in sort of one end of the field and then you'd have some parts of the, the regular stands would have fans in, and then you'd have like a temporary stand the other side of the, the pitch mm. there. I think it was also where the Detroit Lions played football, wasn't it? I mean, it's still there, actually. It's always amazed me that there's, to the best of my knowledge, there was never another wrestling event held at that arena. Well, they did actually hold a lot of events, but they were WWF house shows, and they I were see. in sort of the, the basketball setup, so it would I be sort of 10 to 15,000 capacity. But, like, they never returned to it for another WrestleMania. When they did WrestleMania 23... I think that was probably where the Detroit Lions play now, don't they? Because they did go Yeah, back that to was at Ford Field. That is Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the Ford Field was built over the road from where the Silverdome was. And it is also interesting because we're saying like this laid out the uh, format of what WrestleMania was because Vince was still kind of experimenting with what his pay-per-views and his big live events would be, I suppose, because WrestleMania 1 was just another filmed Madison Square Garden event. He'd done that with MTV, although they'd only aired one match, whereas with this one it was like a full card. As you said, closed circuit still. Then he did the Wrestling Classic, which I think is officially their first pay-per-view. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so WrestleMania 1, technically it was on pay-per-view, but, I mean, it was only a very few uh, number of markets, so it was more just, you know, more of an asterisk than anything. Um, the... Wrestling Classic was the first that was strictly on pay-per-view. It was really sort of a test of technology. Mm. Um, and then to say it was it was pay-per-view then taking over from closed circuit. Yeah, and WrestleMania 2, he was experimenting with it being like a coast-to-coast event. I suppose maybe thinking of things like Live Aid taking place in Philadelphia and London and all those other places. So it was just like four mini cards and then the arenas would see what was going on the other ones, which was, again, another thing that the, the NWA, Jim Crockett, had done before them with Starcade 84 or 85 taking place at two venues, wasn't it? But yeah, WrestleMania 3 is the one where it's one card, one event, the biggest match you can possibly book, because, no offence to King Kong Bundy, I don't know that he was the number one heel in wrestling in 1986. Uh, he was just kind of who Hogan was doing the loop with at that particular time. I, I don't know, maybe I'm being unfair. Would you agree with that assessment? No, no, I think that's, that's very true. I mean, had, you know, potentially had WrestleMania been in August every year, it might have been Hogan Orndorff then. Mm. There's always a story that the reason that Orndorff uh, isn't in a match on WrestleMania 3 is that he was kind of just held by in reserve in case it turned out that Andre, you know, wasn't in physical condition to do the match and that would be something they could switch to quite easily. Uh. 
you know, yeah, had been built up on TV but never really paid off on TV. Yeah, I've always wondered if Orndorff's a bit bitter at losing out on a WrestleMania check for that because, I don't know, maybe he got one for being, in, as you say, in reserve, but it does seem kind of crazy, as you were saying, the guy who was headlining the biggest shows that wrestling had held in many markets doesn't even get to be on the undercard. I mean... Uh, King Kong Bundy, yeah, the the fall from grace that is going from uh, main event of WrestleMania 2 to being given a match involving four little people and Hillbilly Jim is <laughs> the only person that had a kind of a similar fall from grace, I suppose, would be The Miz. Was it WrestleMania 27? It's against Cena and WrestleMania 28. Was he in that brand supremacy match? Am I misremembering that against Team Laurinaitis and Team Teddy? Yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and it's also, I think, as well, with WrestleMania 3, there are other storylines being paid off, as you say, in the undercard, the Ricky Steamboat-Randy Savage match, which was really the match that I feel like I'd always really wanted to watch over Hogan-Andre, especially when... I remember WWF doing a magazine of like the five greatest matches in WWF history, and all of them were like matches that happened in like the last few years, and I think three of them had Shawn Michaels in. But the one that was at number one was Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage. So it did hold that kind of that place in as like this mystical match that I then I guess when I became a smart fan, like Masao Kawada in 94 became like that, that match to get my hands on. I wonder if for a lot of people Okada Omega will be going forward. And yeah, just a quick note on the rest of the card, I suppose there was. But there were a couple of other few blow-offs, whereas if you look at WrestleMania 1 and 2, they're really just kind of fillers or showcases. Like, WrestleMania 2 has quite a few squash matches on the card. And WrestleMania 1 obviously has at least one with King Kong Bundy against SD Jones, but that was more as a was more of a reason for that. But you've got Harley Race against Junkyard Dog that was really well built up over that time. That um, was a loser must bow match, wasn't it? Yeah, which... Junkyard Dog refused to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess the other big, uh, you got Alice Cooper there with the Honky Tonk Man against Jake the Snake Roberts. And you got probably the other biggest match, Roddy Piper in his quote unquote retirement match against the adorable Adrian Adonis in uh, Hair versus Hair. So yeah, it is, it's not like every match is vital. A lot of them are just fairly meaningless can-am express against don morocco and bob orton or or whatever or butch reed against coco beware but yeah it is feeling more like a super card of uh matches and and where do you stand john on other obviously steamboat savage is the one that, that stands out we, was that like when you were starting to become smartened up and i guess match quality and the quality of people as workers maybe became more important how did you feel about randy savage and ricky steamboat when you watched it for the first time by the time I saw it, I was probably seeing other stuff on tape trading. So sort of Flair Steamboat, uh, earliest sort of starting to see Japan stuff. So I always kind of saw it as a, a match that is it's undeniably a very good match. But I think it's really helped by its context, by being by far and away the best WWF match of the first few WrestleManias at a time where, you know, match quality of that type wasn't really the important thing. Uh, a lot of, you know, guys were still doing absolutely ridiculous road schedules where you'd be you know working every night for three weeks you get three days off and then you do a, another week or so and then get a few days off um you know some guys were literally doing 60 nights a week in a different time zone every day um and completely jet lagged and you know the the main thing you needed to do in the match was make sure you did it the right length do your signature move at the end and and come out to your music and and otherwise just staying awake staying awake was the main challenge yeah so yeah, Steamboat Savage was such a memorable match. And, you know, so much of it is just going for two counts and, and kickouts. And it, it's yeah. kind of amazing people now, you know, you do that kind of sequence of matches and it's like, oh, they're, they're doing too much. You know, they're making everything meaningless by having so many kickouts. Well, that's kind of the, the basis of the match fair. But I think it's also, it's, it was helped by having the storyline and having such distinct but sort of memorable characters in it. Mm. And Simon, have you seen any other matches on the WrestleMania 3 card? I'm guessing if you've watched anything, it's Savage Steamboat. Maybe Roddy Piper against Adrian Adonis. Or, or again, is it just, just this match? Simon? Uh, no, the only match... Um, I don't think I've actually even seen Steamboat Savage all the way through. It doesn't ring a bell that I've seen it all the way through. No, there's precious little of the early WrestleManias I've actually like watched, truth mm. be told. Because, again... 
by the time I was looking back, I was looking back for uh, Stone Cold versus Shawn Michaels, Stone Cold versus Brett. That's that's mm. more that was my looking back bag. Like, and I've said it countless times. One of the reasons that I wanted to start this project was so I could look back more wholesale at the wrestling I have, not just wrestling I like. And part of this is covering famous matches, and that's that's why I'm excited to do this particular project because it'll. Give me a chance to look at specific WrestleMania matches that I've not got round to watching. I must have confessed that Steamboat Savage did slightly underwhelm me when I finally watched it because it only goes about 13 minutes and obviously they pack so much into that 13 minutes. But like you say, John, it's not really about a huge succession of moves, but I think it's the pace that it goes on. And as you say, those number of two counts, I guess they just weren't really doing it. Nowadays, it'd be complaints about what moves are getting two counts whereas like you say with this one it's like how many twos are there and i suppose the other point of contention in wrestling fandom was i don't know if any of you seen the clip of al snow saying who had the best match at wrestlemania 3 and saying no it wasn't steamboat savage it was hogan andre because that was the match that drew the house and you can get the lesson he's trying to impart especially to wrestlers that your job is not to have the best match on a quality scale from a very small number of fans that don't mean anything, but to have the match that draws the gate in. But it's just a semantics issue because, like, the the, be- the best movie of any year, if you were to ask Al Snow what his favourite movies are, I'm guessing he's not going to say just Avengers, or maybe he will, but, you know, Avengers, Titanic, uh, Avatar, or whatever. Um, I guess maybe this is the starting block, of, not maybe not the starting point, because obviously you have... I guess it would be the NWA and Ric Flair and those sort of workers. But what do you feel of this culture that I guess Power Slam kind of started to impart in me of match quality and performances of wrestler versus, you know, you've got to go with Hogan and Andre because they're the biggest stars regardless of what you think they are as the best wrestler or not. Well, I think both Sorry. both of those matches, their kind of their reputation is kind of influenced by being on the same cards as the others. So I think Savage Steamboat is so fondly remembered because it it has that contrast with the the main event of being two very different styles of matches. And I think Hogan Andre is kind of perhaps historically underrated because it came half an hour or so after what was probably the best WWF match in sort of decades. So there really is that, that contrast there. And I think the idea of, you know, this is how you decide what the best match is kind of flawed because by that logic, you know what the best match is before the shows happen, which makes mm. no sense. And I think the counter argument should be surely the best match is the one that draws the biggest money for the rematch because that mm. tells you the first match worked. Yeah, and you can argue that why this match is so great, that it's probably Randy Savage proving that he can be that compelling a performer, that despite his relative physical inadequacies compared to Hogan and Andre, the second biggest match I think you can argue of Hogan's career and of WrestleMania was WrestleMania five against the much shorter Randy Savage, who's not that figure of imposing fear that andre plays in this match so that's the sort of argument i suppose you could say of that being the best match because then it leads to savage becoming a main eventer and having a wrestlemania main event with hogan two years later absolutely yeah i mean it's part of there's a real sort of multi-year storyline with you know savage and elizabeth in wrestlemania Mm. so wrestlemania 2 you've got him he's the the evil heels mistreating his woman against sort of a valiant george Steele. wrestlemania 3 george Steele gets his uh, sort of come up and on savage you know at four they've turned and elizabeth helps him win the world title at five they've split again you know what's she going to do she's a mutual corner six she comes back she's against him seven she comes back and makes the save and at eight you know she, her valor has been uh you know impugned by rick flair and savage gets his revenge and wins the title so it's like a almost a, a six-year storyline there of sort of savage and elizabeth i think that's arguably the, the biggest sort of ongoing thing in the, the early wrestlemanias yeah, and nine is her, uh, Randy Savage trying to experience his post-divorce life by being fed grapes by women as they carry him to the re- <laughs> arena as a commentator. <laughs> that that's, is our... that's just Vegas, mate. That's yeah. just Vegas. We'll go more into that as it goes as we get to our next episode. I realise we, we need to wrap up soon. One quick thing I want to say was about Andre's immobility. Like people say how tragic it was to see The Undertaker in the Roman Reigns match or whatever not be able to do the things he could do or in Ric Flair's WrestleMania 24 match he can't do the classic stand up from the, the the down position in just the traditional mat wrestling sequence. Andre can't even get his foot above his waist for the big boot spots. <laughs> you know, it's kind of crazy. But the one thing I do want to quickly get across as well with Hogan as you were saying he doesn't do his traditional Hulk up or anything like that. He also... I think Hogan, this might be his greatest performance in just how he sells 
how much of an imposing presence Andre is that I noticed when he does his entrance, he doesn't even do his classic pointing at Andre. He stokes up the crowd, but he never like pushes it with Andre. And when Andre had challenged him on Piper's pit, he just had that look of fear in his eyes. Like this is his worst nightmare. It's the thing he's almost, he wouldn't admit to it that he's dodged uh, ever since he became champ. And Andre was the first one there to congratulate him. And it was funny as well, seeing like one of those weird moments of insider terms appearing on screen at that time that Hogan says, thanks boss, which was always the like backstage name for Andre the giant. And, when he's tearing off his shirt, he's not even doing it to the crowd or anything because Andre has never moved from the center of the ring. Usually his opponent flees and Hogan is going all around the ring. That ground is already occupied by Andre. and He's not budging. I would you agree? I think this is probably the other ones you would argue is maybe WrestleMania six because he's carrying a more limited worker again in ultimate warrior. WrestleMania five is maybe the best match overall with Randy Savage or WrestleMania 18 is his ultimate triumph against the, his equivalent star, you know, like his, and that brilliant moment in WrestleMania 18 when he hits the leg drop on the rock and goes for the pin. And JR, maybe my favorite call of wrestling ever is him going, he beat Andre the Giant with that move. Again, paying up to that mythical figure that Andre was at this point and continued to be later on. Is this Hogan's best performance? And also, last question, is this the biggest match ever in wrestling? Uh, John, do you want to go first or something? Uh so I'd certainly John. say maybe not his best performance, probably his most physically impressive in being able to kind of take take his stick and adapt as it needed to be with, you know, a guy who was basically this, this immovable object um, and to work it around. And it's really the facials. And I always remember the, the, the footage of him at the end of the match where he's would be doing the whole cup as if, if he'd sort of been going for the pin, but he's shaking his head back and forth. And that was actually the ending of the opening sequence of Superstars of Wrestling when I started watching that regularly in, in 89. So that's a couple of years later, they're still using that footage. And mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it really is iconic. It's 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 just the, the image there that they've done. Uh, really, I think that's, yeah, probably his most uh, physically impressive kind of performance of, of sort of smart working. And the biggest match of all time? Um certainly of its of its era partly objectively so partly because you know history is is written by the winners and it was always in their interest for for that to be the best match and i think a lot of it's because things in the early WrestleManias will stand out because there were so few to compare them to you know now Mm. nowadays you've got 40 years of matches you've got you know 10 15 years of of just like wrestlemanias where there may be sort of six or seven hour shows with like a seemingly a thousand matches on some of them and a lot of kind of very similar style in the main event but back then it is um because you've got so few to compare them it's really standing out and yeah i mean it's it's arguably the first time that you've got a national promotion trying to very much say this is maybe the biggest match of the year this is is what the whole year is kind of, of built around and, and that's how it's going to sort of stand out historically simon your opinions best Hogan performance, biggest match of all time? Best Hogan performance, contextually considering the circumstances he had to work around, I I would absolutely say that. In terms of like impressive things I've seen Hogan do, we do harken back to the match of the week episode we did where he he wrestled Stan Hansen and I saw a different side of Hogan. And because it was a a different side that I, I hadn't seen a lot of, that, that sticks with me a little bit more. But uh, no, I echo a lot of uh, John's points across this uh, episode that it's working around the limitations in such a way and like really drawing on his charisma, but in a, di- in a different way to w- with opponents that bump around him, he's bumping around Andre. Uh, so it's really impressive to see him go off the beaten WWF track and produce a performance like this. Generationally, for me, I do have a soft spot for WrestleMania 18, purely just to see how they altered on the fly when they realized, right, Hogan's gone into this match as the heel, but the public aren't going to let this happen. And and how they, like, flip the script within the match itself. Mainly also because it's something I saw a lot as a kid. It's one of the few DVDs uh, the Neaton Library had uh, that was a wrestling DVD. So I, I watched Hogan. No, tell a lie. It's one I bought from Entertainment Exchange. So I watched a lot of WrestleMania 18 growing up, as there weren't. I didn't have a lot of access back then. Um, so I always have a soft spot for it. But in terms of working with a limited partner, part of me does give the edge to WrestleMania. The more I think about it, the more I'd give the edge to WrestleMania 3, actually. I've sort of talked myself out of it <laughs> in, the, in this sentence, basically. 
Well, yeah, whether or not it's 93,000 people or not at that arena, they're there not because it's called WrestleMania, like when there's 100,000 people for a show that has, what, Roman Reigns against Triple H. They weren't the ones that brought them there. Why have you picked that specific one? (laughs) I don't know. It's just the one that came to mind. Oh, you were at that one, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, this is Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. They were the ones that drew in like 85 of those 93,000 or whatever percentage of them it is. I think it's fair to say. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think oh, yeah. you can give them a, a lot for credit. And certainly, even if you know if they didn't necessarily make the, the difference for the getting those extra tens of thousands it was what gave him the confidence to book for building it it may have been that you know something else would have done similar numbers but they would never have booked it without being so fat confident about the uh about the audience mm. uh some last notes i was just making I, I it was interesting how relatively low involved bobby heenan is he's just there on the entrance he waves to the crowd with andre which is again so funny like andre doesn't really wrestle very heelish he's just the giant guy that doesn't need to cheat to win the match and Heenan is essentially it's Heenan's presence that makes Andre the heel more than anything in this match a lot of rubbish being thrown into the ring did it, did you guys notice that oh yeah in fact one of my like non-wrestling notes is the absolute worldy catch yes the referee does <laughs> yeah it's funny as well you always associate a Hebner with those big matches but I don't know if Dave Hebner might have been a referee at that point, but it being Joey Morello, I'd always sort of seen as like the number two, like the Mike Kyoda of that era of referees, but he's the one that gets the Hogan Andre. I don't know if that was Gorilla Monsoon doing a bit of politicking, because I don't, I always feel like his final three count could have been more epic feeling. But again, maybe they don't yet have that sense of how grand and what a three count's supposed to sound like in these sort of matches. I don't know. Maybe I wonder if, if possibly it was because part of the match, the, the early uh, spot with Hogan going for the slam, falling back and, and almost getting pinned, and the referee actually, it looks like they hit the map three times. Mm. That was a big part of kind of protecting Andre to set up yeah. the later rematches and bring him back. That would be shown in sort of slow motion thing. I wonder if it was just, you know, don't have the top referee put in that spot, have the other guys so you can kind of yeah. imply, you know, maybe yeah. he's screwed up. Oh, yeah, so... the, commentary, the commentators do lean on that point. I think uh, Jesse is going, that was free. That was free. I do misremember that being a lot more ambiguous. To me, it seems like Hogan quite clearly gets his shoulder up before the three in that one. Because then, like, it, they pay that off, I suppose, 11 months down the line when Hogan very visibly kicks out and they continue the three count in the match where Andre wins the belt from him. Uh, yeah, just a little just a little thing I noticed. Um Oh, the one thing I thought we could make us both reflect, Hulk Hogan in this match is 33, Andre the Giant is 41. <laughs> one thing that I've always associated with the early WrestleManias, but I've realised it's only this event and WrestleMania 6 that they ever were used with the mini rings that, that pushed the, that took the wrestlers into the match. I've always wanted those to make a comeback. I loved those when I was a kid. They... WrestleMania 6. They did them for the Royal Rumble for some of the larger wrestlers at one point. That that wasn't a uh, mini ring. That was like a uh, a cart of sorts because mm. there's Big but... E giving like the, the salute yeah, um, on it. I, I do like the mini rings. I, I, I think it adds a sense of grandeur. Yeah, it makes that... them look like bigger deals as wrestlers. Yeah. Oh, also, I think in the for WrestleMania six main event, I'm I'm pretty sure the Ultimate Warrior doesn't actually come a ring. He runs to the ringside. Yeah. That kind of really stands out. The fact that he was about to do a 25 minute match means that was probably one of the worst <laughs> ideas ever. But <laughs> yeah. one, of the, one of the few times the Ultimate Warrior came out first, and it's like we definitely need the Ultimate Warrior to come out first for this one. If it was The Rock, he'd be like, "Have bottles of water ready for him." Um, <laughs> uh, and also because Hulk Hogan is the only one that does walk out he doesn't come out with the ring and that was how it was structured like you say i think for the wrestlemania to make the main event feel big was to have those guys enter on their own and hogan was supposed to be the only one to do that at wrestlemania 3 but the ring wasn't ready in time for rowdy roddy piper so he did get to uh, walk out on his own uh, on his own decision without vince mcmahon being able to stop him and i do think piper's thought process going is like what are they gonna do fire me this is my retirement yeah. match. <laughs> so I'm going to get that special treatment as well. 
when uh, Piper was Piper was master of that, he would always do something sort of like ten percent different to everyone else to stand out. So sort of two of the mm. things of his that most stand out to mind, which are really simple, was his final Piper's pits before WrestleMania three. He stood up on a table and said it was so you know everybody in the crowd could could sort of see him. And it's like you know he's he's talking to the fans there in the arena. He's not doing what you're meant to do for the cameras in the production of a fake wrestling TV show. Mm. The other one is in the build up to the Bret Hart match at WrestleMania eight. He sort of the talk is, you know, we're we're old friends, I used to come around your house and everything. And he actually gets them to sort of sit down um on the, the interview set as if it's just, you know, two guys having a chat, not performing for this this arena and again not standing in the place you're meant to do when you're doing your pre scripted interview. Yeah, absolutely. Piper should have got a little bit of a bonus check for the work that he does in Piper's Pit setting up as we said, it was just four Piper's Pit segments. And a couple of other little bits that they did. Uh, Roddy Piper, he's just so good. And as, I think it's also good that it's like the guy that was like Hogan's original enemy. And they've turned, they've come around and they've come to terms with each other. And, and Piper being the one that notices that Hogan's bleeding because he accidentally got scratched when Andre ripped his shirt and ripped his cross. That's, just... that's up there as like some of the best accidental blood possibly of all time. <laughs> oh, actually, uh, I interviewed Piper uh, oh, wow. years ago for Fighting Spirit magazine. And one of the things I sort of talked to him about was that build up And how he was very aware of the fact that this was the time where you know on piper's pit it had to it couldn't be about him because most mm. Piper's pits either it would be two other guys having a few but he would be kind of like getting his face in there making sure he remembered him or it would be him setting something up and here he kind of had to take a take the backstage you know who's confident but he knew that you know he's gonna be on screen his name's there but he he kind of knew this was different this was something where he had to build up the, the two guys and again either three of them or all four of them were actually filmed on the same night mm. uh, of course it was played out over the tv so you have this like little like week to week kind of just very subtle development of it and then building up to the end him spotting the, the thing and he was like i think he had some like sort of line he was meant to say to get out but he just saw the blood and he was just like your bleeding is all you need to kind of push mm. across kind of how serious it is but you know hogan is distraught and, and like left on the floor and, and and not the big guy anymore i think one other thing in the, the build-up that uh sometimes gets overlooked because it's kind of not in the packages <clears throat> um but a really really effective way of saying it was they did uh, these sort of skits on TV where they actually went out and made a, a giant version of the WWF title belt with a much longer strap yes, to wrap yes. around him. And looking back through kind of like the wrestling observers of the time, it's amazing how many of the sort of so-called smart fans actually fell for that. And they're like, well, they wouldn't bother, you know, spending all the money on this if they weren't going to put the title <laughs> on, on Andre. And once who, you know, should have known better because they... Uh, it, it was kind of no secret within the wrestling industry that you know Hogan was going to win this whatever he sort of you know he tells you later because you know Hogan was the chosen guy this was to make him uh and Andre was you know pretty much done was going to be gone for sort of several months after the show so wasn't going to be winning but yeah it's amazing how many people kind of kind of bought into that aspect of it I do love those little extra added touches that just a, just a clever thing of just something that the Bobby Heenan said in advance I want my man to be able to wear a belt so you've got to make him a special belt because like yokozuna always had to hold the title over his shoulder they never did that for him uh to be fair yoko kept expanding during his time as champion i think so they would have had we're not making a fifth belt for you yoko (laughs) just put the popsicle down (laughs) Uh, have we ever considered a way of making elastic look like leather (laughs) (laughs) well they're using velcro nowadays aren't they which i always feel is a is a terrible (sighs) Just one last question that we have for you, John. Uh, I did send you this in the email. I don't know if you you remember or if it's uh, it's you're going to be put on the spot. But also, wanted to quickly ask: Have you ever actually attended a WrestleMania live yourself? Yeah, I went to uh, WrestleMania 19, which was the one in Seattle oh. with uh, great great show, Lesnar Angle in the main yeah. event, Vince McMahon, Hogan, and uh, Shawn Michaels, Chris Jericho, sort of the standout matches. Well, we don't have 19 penned down for this year's March Mania, so maybe if we do bring this back, we might, we'll might we have to bring you back for that one. Because there are some people that argue that 19 is actually 
match for match, pound for pound, an even better show than WrestleMania 17 was two years later. Uh, I know there are people that fight the good fight for WrestleMania 19. So, yeah, that would be a great thing. But um, the one thing I was thinking of asking every guest is, if you could book a WrestleMania match that could have happened, so there's no time traveling or anything like that, but if maybe if you wanted to bring in Magnum TA into the WWF in 1988 and he'd just not been in a car crash, like that level of opting in your dream match... I think the two example, the other example I gave you when I was sending an email was instead of it being King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania two, Hulk Hogan wrestled Nikita Koloff. Do you have a a, a dream WrestleMania match you would have loved to have seen happen that never did? Yeah, we actually had a uh, almost an amazing segue for it earlier. Uh, oh, so it would be Bret Hart defending against Randy Savage at WrestleMania nine, and yes. um, especially I. You know, I don't think it was ever on the cards. It wasn't really thought about. You know, Savage certainly would have been very interesting in that time. I think, you know, the only reason anyone ever thinks about could have happened was because Savage came second in the Royal Rumble that year. And Mm. you just think about, you know, what an amazing match that would have been, um, really putting Brett over as, you know, the next champion against uh, against sort of somebody from the past. And what I will say is if you've got the Legends of WrestleMania video game, which is, I think, one of the few video games where you can just do computer versus computer player and it's actually genuinely enjoyable to watch because of the way the way sort of moves fit together and it, it sort of goes like a, a real wrestling match rather than a sort of video game. But yeah, I mean, so I've, I've seen Heart Savage on there a few times. So it's, it's good to just kind of visualise uh, how you kind of imagined it. Uh, Simon, any other further notes from you? No, not really. Like, just... the. <sighs> The more I look at my notes, and and just the more immobile you realise Andre was, it's amazing that they managed to hoodwink people. Yeah, um, I don't think so anyone much left that arena feeling shortchanged. Or... Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I would always say, kind of rewatching this match, is that I still cannot decide if it is the best terrible match ever or the worst <laughs> great match ever. Well, I mean, again, I don't want to bring Dave Meltzer in a lot, but if you want a point of contention, when the Observ- when he wrote this event up for the Observer in 1987, he rated. What do you think he rated this match, Simon? Oh, 87 Meltzer. Mm-hmm. Um, 2.75 minus four stars was oh, what Meltzer God. gave. It's one of the few matches he's actually gone and revised his opinion. He now says it's one star. To be fair, he actually um, back back revised for one star was one week later after oh, the okay. rating. But yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think that the two sort of factors in that are one, of course, it it didn't have the historical legacy at, at mm. that week, but it would go on to have. And the other, of course, I guess is is it is coming just straight after uh, Savage Steamboat. So you've got that kind of. Yeah absolute point of comparison but yeah i think that's that's certainly one that is you know minus four i think would certainly be kind of unfair on it in <laughs> and hindsight i remember this is the last observation actually i want to make because i was thinking of this being a feature i'm still not sure if we'll include it in subsequent episodes but i thought i might try and put these events in context of what's happening in the world at this time so i went on wikipedia i went on a couple of other things of notable events in march april of 1987 and these were the ones that really stood out so around march and april of 1987 uh, the fda in america approved for azt as a drug to fight aids which was quite a significant medical breakthrough les miserables opened on broadway for the first time and um, vincent van gogh's sunflowers sells for 22.5 million dollars if you want to talk about a guy who got screwed over, we've got Paul Orndorff, and now we've got the payment that they were due. But what's so crazy is that looking at all these things, global events and everything, both of the sites I checked, one of the key events that was put on was WrestleMania three happened and Hulk Hogan beat Andre the Giants. So if that's not a signifier of just how significant this match was and WWF and wrestling and Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant were in 1987, I don't know what else is. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us for this, John. We're still trying to iron out our, our roles as as hosts, and we'd love to have you back either for a future Mania Madness or a Match of the Week or any kind of chat you might be up for having in the near future. If people want to get in touch with you or follow your own stuff, I've got uh, your great book on British wrestlers, your little 
mini biographies of each of them. I've really had some good time reading that over the years. Uh, how can they do so? Uh, easiest way, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at John Lister. Also, prowrestlingbooks.com, which is a, a review site with reviews of more than 250 wrestling books. Uh, and there's also a link on to there to uh, all four books of mine, which are available on Amazon. I've got to ask you, you still have a follower of Hitchin Town to this day? Yeah, yeah, still uh, still a fan. In fact, that was pretty much what I was doing in 87. I would also say, really, I would say the most important cultural event of 1987 was Barry Venison on the front of a Sabutio catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's great. So and if people want to get in touch with you with any other recommendations of Hulk Hogan matches from this era of his career or just this whole era of WF wrestling, how can they do so? People can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm under Simon Cross Free. And yes, I'm going for the lazy one listeners free because this is WrestleMania free we're talking about. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N. That's at the end of Hogan and at the start of Andre. Uh, if you put it out gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address, Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, let's box the likes. You can get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. lntyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except thank you once again, John, for joining us. Thank you. It's been great to be here. My name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us through this, when it finally starts happening, March Mania. <laughs> <laughs>